1: Hey, everybody, it's Joe Trippi, and welcome back to a special guest episode of That Trippi Show. This week, we welcome Jackie Combs, recently named Washington columnist for the LA Times. Her new book, Dissent, The Radicalization of the Republican Party and Its Capture of the Court, is out now, and highly recommend uh, you pick up a copy. Jackie, welcome.
2: Thank you for having me, Joe. It's great to be here.
1: We've been so focused on what to do about this autocratic movement uh, now that I don't think many people fully grasp sometimes the effect of Trump's three Supreme Court nominees. I mean, they 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 feared it and they and they worried about it, but I'm not sure they understand the full effect of it and what happened during his term. You call it weaponizing judicial politics and confirmations are a full-fledged partisan war now. Just want to. Uh, have you get into that a little bit for us?
2: Well, it's a war that the Republicans have won. Uh, the court is now 6 3, uh, six Republican appointees in the majority. And of that six, uh, at least four are ideologues, um, right wing ideologues that are um, willing to really push the country in a far right direction and. Um, and, and the, you know, there's a lot of talk about getting Stephen Breyer to retire uh, so that Joe Biden can name someone. But he, uh, even if he does, it's um, likely he'd be replaced, you know, by a like-minded person. So it wouldn't change the 6-3 uh, dynamic. Unfortunately, if uh, Breyer waits till next year, as he seems um, he wants to do, you know, this. Democrats with a 50-50 split in the Senate could easily lose one of their members. And once again, you'd have Mitch McConnell as majority leader, and you could easily see a 7-2 to two court in some future date. Uh, of course, that wouldn't happen well as long as Biden's president, but you know that just gets us through 2024. But uh, in any case, you don't want Mitch McConnell in charge of the Senate for the next opening to the Supreme Court.
1: But before you, we get into your book a little bit more, uh, I just wanted to call out, you wrote a great op-ed in the LA Times last month called uh, uh, Your Front Row Seat to the Radicalization of the Republican Party. I think it was an excerpt from your book. It's been a long time coming, but a good place to start. You were there during the Ginrich years and point out a lot of things that we look back now should have been pretty obvious.
2: Right, right. You know, I'm old school in more ways than one. And um, so Gingrich, when I got to, co- started covering Congress in 1984, Gingrich um, had been there six years. He was still a backbencher and I got to know him pretty well even before his rise. And I knew that he was already plotting his rise because he told me as much. And when I say I'm old school journalism, that means, you know, you. I got into journalism to know both sides, all sides of a story. And you generally had this equivalence that okay, if you're writing a story that implies Republicans do something wrong or bad, negative, generally there's a something you say in the story that says, but Democrats do the same thing. You know, they what, but but by the time Gingrich came along and the way he was showing that he was not about passing laws and representing his constituents so much as he was about gaining power, I decided this this equivalence that we sort of reported between the parties was a false equivalence. Um, And I think that became ever more the case as the years went on. And um, so, you know, that's what it, 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 even in the course of writing my book, I was a little worried about saying something like the radicalization of the Republican Party. And I was playing with the word transformation. And this has been like three years ago. And now that seems ridiculous. I mean, it's, it doesn't seem even arguable that the party has become radicalized. So um, it's been a big change during my years as a journalist, and, but I'm no longer, you know, I've chafed for easily 25 years since Gingrich came along as, uh, came to power, um, about this idea that the Republicans don't have any more responsibility for our dysfunction than Democrats do, that's just wrong. And not only, and now it's even worse that the Republicans, as you you say, Are pushing us in an anti-democratic place. It's just, I I just shake my head every day at what we're living through.
1: Yeah, you still see a lot of that both-sidism in journalism today. I mean, part part of it is I just think so many people uh, in the press, so many citizens are still sort of stuck in the delusion that there's two functioning parties when in fact, once been taken over by, you know, anti-democratic, authoritarian, whatever you want to call it, but it's
0: clearly impulses that are anti-democracy. Um, so it, before before we move on, I want to go back to Gingrich for a second, Jackie. I mean, it, you pointed out that I mean, this has basically been coming and been building for like a quarter century at this point. Obviously, you know, we've been sounding the alarm. Groups like the Lincoln Project been sounding the alarm, but that's been like last six months hitting the panic button. Or you know, toward the end of Trump, how did everybody kind of skate by this for so long?
2: Um, when you say everybody, do you mean like journalists or or just everybody that's watching? Mar- Mar- Mar-
0: journalists, Democrats, the media. I mean, you're the grassroots supporters that have been so excited about Democrats over the years.
2: I, I think it's a function that we're you know we're all sort of. Behind the curve, and we were were reacting the way we were brought up to act. We we assume, you know, that however partisan somebody's going to be or some group is going to be, there are norms that we have all agreed long ago to live by. And norms are, you know, like a a, a fool's game these days, as far as Republicans are concerned. And and uh, then Democrats have, I think, justifiably gotten a reputation for better and worse of being you know, the ones who are trying to protect norms and and operating by norms. And that's why, um, that's um, among the reasons why the Republicans have beaten them so soundly in the judicial confirmation wars. Um, And uh, I just think people uh, were inclined to just uh, judge things the way we were always taught to judge and and nobody even, a lot of Democrats don't like to call out the Republicans for what this is because we work with each other. We talk, we know each other. We talk to each other all the time. And you just can't believe that, you know, these people that you thought you knew would would do things that you would never do or that you never thought you'd see somebody do. And um, I, I just think we have to all take a uh, have a new way of looking at these things, because even this very anti-democratic um, uh area we're in now where where people are like, literally, we're trying to overturn the election. You had Mark Meadows in an interview and in just in recent days talking about Trump as if he's the incumbent president and had about on a meeting at Bedminster of his cabinet. I mean, that is seditious behavior. And we are just treating it as if it's like politics as usual. Well, it's not usual.
1: I want to get into how the whole court the, you know the, how they did this so long in the court. I mean, you know, from Reagan to the Tea Party, the creation of the Federalist Society, they had a plan to do this. And kind of like you said, I mean, I think part of it also is uh, I think Stuart Stevens and Reed, Reed Galen talk about we have a lack of imagination for how far they're willing to go um, mm-hmm. and to see what they were doing. So we, we were blind to, to actually seeing what they were doing while it was happening. Um, But how give us a background exactly how they built this thing, how how they.
2: Yeah. Well, um, there was, you know, if you could go back briefly to Nixon, between Nixon and Ford, they had five openings on the Supreme Court and the conservative. You know, back then there was still this inner tension within the Republican Party between mainstream Republicans, the sort of Chamber of Commerce traditionalists and the um, far right, which was. You know, much more uh, nativist and uh, into culture war issues. And they saw this as a chance to remake the court from the Warren court that was responsible for all the decisions we now know of of desegregating schools, taking prayer out of the public schools, um, rights, new rights for defendants. And all they wanted to just put an end to all those things. but Nixon sort of stayed um, the traditional way, and he, he named people that were from the, the old mold, the you know, people who had worked their way up through the legal establishment and um, the bar, or in Chamber of Commerce type people and corporate attorneys. And um, most of those, except for Rehnquist, the five justices appointed by, Nixon and one along with one from Ford one after the uh, Nixon resigned, those were big disappointments. So at that point, the Republican right wing and the um, well, some of their well-heeled donors decided to push harder for this. And in 1982, uh, some students at Yale um, with money from um, the right put together a little group and they called it the Federalist Society. And. Um, they, they, they had a mission statement that was, you know, really looked at the long game, that this would be a way of, of networking among conservative lawyers. And by, their, by virtue of their, just their membership in this group, they would be identified as conservative ideologues. They would be, you know, stick together through their legal careers so that you then had chapters that were not students, any college students, law school students, they were lawyers in cities around the country. And by the time of the George Bush administration, Um, this was tens of thousands of people. And and these were lawyers, many of them ambitious, who had proven their bona fides, conservative bona fides. And which is why you now have of the six Republican appointees on the Supreme Court, all six are or have been Federalist Society members, which is not to suggest anything nefarious about the Federalist Society necessarily, but it's, you know, the left has nothing like it. There's no similar analog that identifies People like this person is a conservative and and we know they are because they not only belong to the Federalist Society, but we're no longer taking from places like corporate America. We're taking from people who have served in Republican administrations, political jobs. You know, Chief Justice uh, Roberts, Brett Kavanaugh, um, they both served in Republican administrations and their work there is well known. They're, they're proven Conservatives and um, you know, and we're seeing the results. It's it was a long game, and they've won. I mean, normally our politics, you know better than me, Joe. Uh, people in politics are day traders; they're only concerned with the next election. But this was one in which they looked. Decades ahead and we're fortunate enough to have someone like Mitch McConnell come into the picture
1: Yeah, and then he really accelerated it during the, the oh, Obama yeah. administration I mean, Filibustering Obama's, uh, you know, lower court nominees, the Garland hijack Yes, uh, And then Trump's term uh, You know, it was, it's literally as if The bipartisan confirmation process sort of surged into, you know, an autocratic movement's you know, exercise of raw power. I mean, it's just that in yeah, terms of what they've been able to take take control of uh, in the judicial system now.
2: That's astounding to me. By all rights, a, a one-term president like uh, Trump should have had one appointment to the Supreme Court, and he put three there, fully one-third of the court. And, um, you know, I in all my years of covering Congress, 13 of them full-time, and then in the years I covered the White House, I, of course, had one foot Or remaining aware of what was going on in Congress, certainly for confirmation of presidential appointees. But I always had a sense that the Democrats were being outplayed. And yet I never focused enough to know. So with this book, I focused and I did learn, like you say, both Clinton and Obama left more than 100 judges' vacancies on the federal bench. And Trump used to joke to his rallies, the MAGA rallies, about how he couldn't believe that. Barack Obama had left these many, this many vacancies for him to fill. And he would say something about him being complacent or lazy. And it just had that undertone of, you know, the lazy black man left me, didn't do his work and left me all these vacancies. Well, that wasn't the case at all. They were left because Mitch McConnell and Chuck Grassley and Lindsey uh, Lindsay Graham knew how to block them and did.
0: Jackie, this is essentially the result of a decades-long organizing strategy. Like the Federalist Society is part of it. You mentioned that the left has has nothing like it. Um, Democrats haven't necessarily been terrible about being reactive to this stuff because it's kind of their only option at times. But what can we do, you know, starting now, because if we don't start, it's never going to happen. Is there some kind of organizing or long-term thing? Joe, I'm thinking like how we, we invented digital organizing on the left and yet there's never been anything like that on the judicial side or or, or to figure out how to how to counteract this
2: well you have um now uh, there is demand justice the group that's trying to do this from grassroots and and i think what they're trying to do i'm not and i really i don't have a sense of how effective it is but it's 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 more effective than nothing that's for sure but i think somehow the case needs to be made to the base that the courts matter and it may be too late. But you know, on the other hand, there are vacancies happen and it may never, it's it's never too late. The trouble, there's no unlike the Republican side, there is a there is a unity in what their goal is and how to go about it. That and I don't see that on the Democratic side, and for instance, on these so-called court reform ideas. There's no there's no unanimity or even I, I couldn't even tell you despite all the all the in, all the research and the interviews I've done where Democrats are on that I don't think they know but they, they really don't want to act on court reforms right now because well, for one thing Joe Biden is not for for them and uh, something like uh, uh, like term limits for a, for Supreme Court justices would possibly need a, a constitutional amendment, we know how hard that is to get. So I think, but I, I think in the short term, what, what they can do is just make more of an issue of the courts and, and how important they are. Um, at this point, I think it's going to take, there are going to be some decisions in the coming term, things like abortion that are going to, and gun more uh, going against gun controls that are really going to focus the left on, on what the court can do to their causes. And it may be that, you know, you need to have some of those bad decisions in order to mobilize and and make people, the grassroots, realize just how important the courts are.
1: Well, talking about bad decisions, uh, I'd like to get into what your book uh, got into in the Kavanaugh story. You know, our friend Ron Brownstein called your book, dissent the confirmation hearing that Kavanaugh should have had, but didn't receive. So right. I'd like you to get into that a bit, if you could.
2: Oh, I'd love to, because um, it was just, you know, in September of 2018, um, I, I was a White House editor then, and I happened to have time to watch the first camp uh, confirmation hearings on Kavanaugh. It was a week, the week after Labor Day, and this was before any of the sexual assault allegations had come out, and I had no idea I was going to be writing a book uh, by a, you know two months later that uh, that would have anything to do with this uh, hearing, but and, and confirmation. But I was watching it, and I was just astounded at what was coming out in new emails. They was it was an incomplete record. The Republicans did not make Kavanaugh's whole record of his years in the Bush White House available. But what did get out? The Democrats were trying to show had arguably, I think, pretty compellingly showed that Kavanaugh had lied in his previous two confirmation hearings for the DC Court of Appeals, which is the second highest court in the land. Um, and, and then arguably for the Supreme Court in 2018. And in those four days, I was so amazed by the, the what they had and how it undercut his credibility that I, I called a friend on the judiciary committee, a friendly source, and I, and I said, this is this man should be disqualified, and and they said, well, yeah, but we don't have the votes. We all we can do is hope that um, it undercuts his credibility enough that maybe one of the two or three Republican swing voters will come over, and they didn't. And I mean, just to summarize the, the what I'm talking about, the evidence showed that he. Um, had dissembled at best about his role in the Bush administration's most controversial policies, including warrantless surveillance, its so-called, you know, war on terror, the, the detention and torture of um, terrorist suspects, and some of the most judicial uh, controversial of Bush's judicial nominees. And him claiming he didn't have a role. And there were things he'd say that he, he didn't have to lie about, that he had no role. He could have said that he was included in the deliberations, but the fact he said he di- he wasn't, and then these emails come out and show that not only was he involved, say, in this one um, judicial nominee's uh, confirmation process, but he was writing memos and calling people and meeting with people and in, in the meetings. Why would you lie about that? So this. But, but most of all, what most gets me, and I gave a lot of space to it, was this obscure scandal that was actually a big deal in the Senate. Uh, 2003, it was discovered late in the year that a Senate Republican aide to the leadership had been pilfering Democrats' emails on the Senate Judiciary Committee for two years and, you, and, and forwarding them to the White House, either Intact or in summarizing what they said. And these were Democrat strategy memos. And Kavanaugh was the chief recipient in the White House. This was at a time when he was already a nominee for the DC Circuit Court of Appeals. So a nominee for a lifetime seat on a federal court was receiving what he should have known was stolen emails. And he said at the time in his 2004 and 2006 hearings when he was asked about it, because this had come out, it had been discovered, there had been a Senate investigation, it was referred to the 2nd District of uh, New York, Southern District of New York for criminal prosecution, Kavanaugh never volunteered any information, the Bush administration refused to cooperate, its DOJ refused to cooperate so anyway, you get to these 2004 and 2006 confirmation hearings of him. When he's asked about it by the Democratic senators, he says that he doesn't know anything about it. He had no, no re- doesn't remember the emails, don't, had no reason to think anything wrong was going on. Fast forward to 2018 when Democrats get their hands on some of these emails, it, sh- it shows that, for instance... He was re- he received an email in which there was an attachment, a four thousand word memo from Democratic Senator Pat Leahy's general counsel summarizing Democrats' strategy on Bush's judicial nominees. Now, how would Brett Kavanaugh, smart enough to be nominated for the second highest court, not know that there was something nefarious about how he came to be in possession of that email? And many more. I, there's many more as I show in the book. And and so he so faced with that evidence in 2018, he no longer claimed, I don't know anything about it. I don't, you know, nothing like that happened. Suddenly he says, oh, this is just standard operating procedure. You know, people think of Congress as being partisan, but Democratic and Republican aides talk to each other all the time and share information like that. Really? No. And and it's just it it just made everybody on the on the on the the Democrats in the hearing and some who Republicans just sort of roll their eyes. And I think that's why I thought even before these sexual assault allegations came up that his credibility, credibility should have been shot. So then when presented a week, 10 days later with this, he said, she said, or she said, he said sexual misconduct allegation. And then another. I was like, why? Why believe him? You know?
0: So it, it kind of seems like it, it really points to how broken or how kind of down, you know, off a cliff the system has gotten. Is there any way we can kind of break out of politicizing these types of hearings so much?
2: You know, it's hard. It it has to come from the players and from each side. And then you look at what happened once the sexual assault allegations came out in Kavanaugh's case. And, um. It's like we hadn't learned anything in the twenty seven years since the Anita Hill uh allegations against Clarence Thomas. Um, you still had victims who were you know didn't want to be public but just wanted to get their information to the Senate, and there was no way to do that without going so public and then it becomes just a a tribal partisan war people, and
1: people going so, to their corners. I, I,
2: Yes, and I don't know how you do this except to come up with some sort of a nonpartisan mechanism. And and you know, really, if our system would work right, we're supposed to be able to, um, you know, not be so tribal. And and it's just this is where the the um, fact of the Republican Party not being a healthy political party comes into play. They're willing to trample norms. Uh, normally, you know, I mean, look at Brett Kavanaugh. If he had not been um, confirmed, Democrats and everyone else knew. Christine Ford said to me, "I knew I wasn't trying to pre- prevent a conservative from being on the on the court. I knew that if it wasn't Brett Kavanaugh, Donald Trump would come forward with another conservative." That so it, that's not the 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 question here. That it's just you know. Who is the right person? Why is it that people would be willing to, in uh, unison, before a person be be in supportive of a person who has so t- compellingly shown they are not qualified for the court? And then you know, it, you go. Just let me mention one other thing: in his his performance in his hearing, the second hearing, which was specifically about the sexual assault allegations, Christine Ford's in particular, that performance by him in which he threatened the Democrats and was just angry, and anything but showing judicial temperance should by itself have been disqualifying.
1: Yeah, the Trump as the wire and no temperament to be president in charge. And uh, no doubt um, that wasn't going to, Kavanaugh's temperament wasn't going to steer any, not any votes. It didn't in the the Senate. But the other thing, it did have implications uh, and impact politics. I mean, we had, I mean, Doug Jones, you know, arguably, Alex and I worked on that campaign. It's just one uh, who arguably lost his, his any chance of winning re-election in Alabama uh, as part of it because he voted against uh, uh, confirming Kavanaugh because of the, some of the, a lot of the things you're actually, you're, you're now pointing out that he had deep concerns about. But it, 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 because of the polarization, because of people going to their corners and the Republicans uh, and Trump uh, being able to fuel that, that polarization, uh, and how far they're willing to go to demonize uh, anybody who who questions them? Uh, uh, it, you know, it, it's arguably why there are not more Democrats in the Senate right now. Um, one of the things I think that 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 reason I wanted to talk to you uh, so much, I'm really glad you you, you uh, brought all this to the podcast. Is when you think about it, given now what they've been able to do in the judiciary, given what um, is happening in these state legislatures where they're both going to be gerrymandering safe Republican seats and at the same time uh, passing suppressive laws that suppress voting rights of the, and making sure they suppress the rights of the right people <laughs> from their point of view. Um, it just seems to me when you know Alex keeps asking, what can we do? What can we do? It means the 2022 election there's only I mean if, if you imagine them having control of the house in 20 after the 2022 election with what's going on the Supreme Court, what's going on in the judiciary, what's happening in those states, you get to a place where we're in another election and that certification comes to the House of Representatives. The courts, are, nothing's likely to stop them from, one, certifying whatever the hell they want, sending it to the Supreme Court, or it'll get challenged. We've got ideologues on the Supreme Court right now that will likely confirm that the House is the you know rightful decision maker there. This gets down to one thing and one, it seems to me, one thing and one thing only. We have to, the, 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 the pro-democracy coalition, whatever you want to call it, has to, stop them from getting a majority from winning that election in 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 2022 it's the only way i mean regardless of whether trump i mean excuse me whether biden gets another appointment or not whether Breyer um steps down or not as you say okay great it's still six three um the that uh supreme court is still going to be there if they have a majority that votes against certification um it's how this authoritarian movement just keeps marching on, unless it's stopped at the ballot box. I mean, it just seems, and that, and and still have to stop them at the ballot box, even while they're passing laws to stop that from happening, to to, to, to stop that defeat from coming. Um, I, I mean, I don't see any other way around it. Uh, I, I mean, d- am I missing something or or? that that's really what it's it's the 2022 election is is much more important than people may realize in this individual seat or that individual senate race
2: well i mean absolutely to me it's you know we all know that since the new deal going back 80 90 years now the the precedent in midterm elections is that the president's party loses seats because he's not on he's not not on the ballot, but um, voters want to send a message. There only been two exceptions to that. One was in 1998 when gave, reflecting Gingrich's overreach and the other was in 2002 when um, the country was sort of uh, still in, in the thrall to the post 9/11 support of George Bush and his party. Um, so so the Democrats, you know they're, they're keyed up to lose seats. It, it just by history's precedent. That said, it's just astounding to me that a party that's behaving as Kevin McCarthy and his House Republican Party is, along with some in the Senate, would be rewarded with majorities. But it goes to the the other problem is that our country is 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 showing the structural disadvantages actually for a for a Democratic Party in that. The Senate is um, heading towards being a body in which 30% of the senators, senators from red states, represent Or 30% of the, of the senators, the ones from the, the, the big states, are representing 70% of the people. And 70% of the senators um, who tend to be from the rural conservative red states are representing just 30% of the people. But then, then you get... To um, and and then they you know, are the one that's the body that um now uh confirms judges, and so as we've seen, we end up with a situation where we have a 6 3 court in part because Donald Trump got three justices to, uh, seated instead of one that he was arguably entitled to, and then in the house, it, it comes into play too because of the um the way like you say, the districts are gerrymandered. So the Republicans have much greater power in, in the House than they should have, more seats than they should have because Republican-controlled state legislatures have so gerrymandered, it. and the court has said it had it will not, this court, the Roberts Court has ruled that the Supreme Court has no um, power over what state legislatures do in, in drawing districts. Now, let me just say one thing in terms of the uh, going forward. You know, people like to point to 2020 elections and how the Supreme Court, as well as some lower courts, ruled against Trump and his um, enablers and that this was a sign that the system worked. Well, you know, I'm happy with the result. We all should be. But in fact, it just it doesn't reflect so much that the system worked is that the cases they brought were so ludicrous. Now the problem is now that these Republican state legislatures have acted and more empowered themselves to um, overturn the results of an election. That's scary for 2022 and 2024 because this Supreme Court has shown by its decisions that it defers to state legislatures. A lot of the question last year was that they weren't they weren't comfortable with this idea that. Courts in the states, whether including the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, that those were having the last word in this previous in pandemic era laws that liberalized voting in a way that Republicans are now uh, going against and trying to pass laws against. So I guess what I'm saying is that now that these key states like Texas and Georgia, Arizona, are giving themselves power over election administrators. There is the very real chance that they will overturn a result they don't like in 2022 and 24. And this court will be amenable to their action.
1: They'll say it was was under the state law and the election was held under the state law. And so we're going to uphold it. Um, And that's where I get down to. That means one thing and one thing only, folks. Um, We have to win that election. I mean, we have to stop them from becoming a majority. I mean, that's the first step. I mean, you look at the filibuster and we, we're we running out of time, but uh, Rod Brownstein pointed out that there's only two things that Republicans really, really deeply, you know, care about judges and taxes, cutting tax, right? And those only require 50, 50 those under, are, are the two exemptions, the two yep, exceptions yep. under the filibuster yep. rule. Everything else that, that Democrats care about or left cares about, whatever you are, are, are held hostage to the filibuster. So the only two things that aren't are the only two things that Demo- that Republicans really care about. Um, so I think there's only really two things that can happen here. One, all of us need to make do everything we can to make sure they're not the, they don't win the majority in 2022 uh, in, in the House uh, and hopefully gain some in the Senate And two, uh, we need to understand that some – the sacred bipartisan filibuster rule, particularly given what you're talking about, how the makeup of the Senate is now, uh, you know, so um, moved definitely in a way that advantages, you know, 30 percent of the – you know, literally 30 percent who are represented by a a lot more senators than – you know, Idaho gets two, California gets two. Well, okay. It, it just doesn't, you can't have the filibuster filibuster protect that, That I think. So um, those are the two things I think we, you know, I, I take from this conversation. I mean, it's really, a, the reason I had Jackie come on uh, again is I think the insight in this book is really important uh, for people to get. Uh, again, the book, dissent, the radicalization of the Republican Party, and its capture of the court. Um, we're going to put that in our show notes, uh, uh, so that make sure you you look for that link. Um, and the other thing is, I want you to know that you can find Jackie on Twitter at Jackie K. Combs, that's J A C K I E K, C A L M E S. Uh, on Twitter. We'll link also to that in our notes uh, for this episode. Um, we'll be back on Friday at the usual time with another special guest and look for a few more Tuesday shows coming your way soon. As always, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple or wherever you listen. And you can always send us a question to show at gmail.com or leave us a question in the review on iTunes. Jackie, thanks so much for for being thank with us, you.
2: I really appreciate. It. I look forward to seeing what you all do to sort of uh, change the result next year from what history would suggest it'll be.
1: Now we're going to build a pro democracy coalition and fight. So, thank you for helping uh, spread the word. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop.